This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Jeff Deist. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. I'm solo this week, but I wanted to do a show on an article I wrote for Mises.org earlier this week called Why Social Issues Dominate Given All of Our Financial, Economic, and Fiscal Woes in This Country. And I thought I would invite my friend Tom Woods to join. So, Tom, good morning. Morning, Jeff. So I want to start with this. Some people might remember the name, I'm sure Tom does, of the professor Lawrence Kotlikoff, who is at Boston University, and no libertarian, no free market fundamentalist, uh, but nonetheless, he came up with the idea of a fiscal gap in America. And so what he did was he did some back-of-the-envelope math, and he basically determined the net present value of all of our reasonably likely future tax revenue and put that up against the net present value, the discounted value of all our reasonably likely outlays in the future for entitlements, especially Social Security and Medicare, which are not accounted for using gap accounting on the U.S. federal government's books in the same way that, let's say, a publicly traded corporation would have to account for its future pension obligations. That's a different story. But nonetheless, uh, if we look at Dr. Kotlikoff's work and we say, you know, what, how much money is federal government likely to take in in the future and how much money is it likely going to have to spend, especially on older folks? Well, he comes up with this fantastical number of $222 trillion with a T, folks, in terms of a gap between those two numbers. And that is a terrifying, terrifying thing to behold. He updates this frequently. I mean, he's done the math. People like Paul Krugman have scrutinized it and attacked it. But basically, nobody questions that there's an enormous shortfall out there. And so I think to myself, would Lawrence Kotlikoff get on the Sean Hannity show today? with this data? Would he? Would Glenn Beck want to talk to him about this? And then I, I open Twitter in the morning or what, you know, you go to the Washington Post or even your local paper. And what are we talking about, Tom? We're talking about abortion. We're talking about LGBT in schools. We're talking about critical race theory. So that was sort of the impetus behind my article. You know, why is this so? Why is it that social issues seem to dominate our media, our discourse? Why do they seem to animate us and get people worked up far more than the underlying issues, the mechanical issues of federal debt. Um, why is this so? Well, your answer was the Supreme Court, because we have this, as you call it, this extraordinary super legislature that everybody knows is a super legislature at this point. Because if I've, I'm already now hearing calls for uh, expansions of the court. I, that, that didn't take long at all. We need more justices on the court. Why, why do we need more? So as to get the outcome I want. So then yeah. what is the point of the court? What is the point of the court if you're just going to expand it to get what you want when the, the court is supposed to be this platonic group of individuals who examine things in the abstract and have no political axe to grind? Can we just drop that? <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, when it comes to the, the issue of Roe versus Wade and we look at the people who seem to be lined up on one side or the other on it, mm-hmm. well, by an odd coincidence, people who seem to be against abortion are against Roe versus Wade. And the justices who seem to favor abortion uh, seem to be for Roe versus Wade. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, what 
Well, is that just an amazing coincidence, or isn't this just a matter of uh, what Robert Barnes told me on, on my podcast not too long ago, which is that what the law schools are churning out are people who have been taught to make the law say what you needed to say to get the outcome you want. I mean, that, mm-hmm. That's really what it is. You can put whatever gloss on it you want, but that's really what it is. Now, I don't, I don't want to give people the impression that we're saying that these aren't important issues. Because, you know, look, if my kids were going to, to these schools, or even to private schools, and they were being indoctrinated in all the various, um, you know, the current ideologies, I would be pretty unhappy about that too. But... I would also, because I'm capable of thinking of more than one thing at a time, I would also be concerned about the fiscal condition of the country, because I know that that will have all kinds of effects on families. And in fact, when you look at uh, the number one reason that couples split up, it's money, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. money. And, and they're going to be inflation, which is a result of um, trying to accommodate all the crazy things the federal government has promised, is doing damage to families right now. And this problem that you've described that Kotlikoff talks about in depth is going to damage families, is going to have moral consequences for a lot of people. And so the fact that we talk endlessly about one thing, and frankly, not at all about the other, not at all. I mean, remember years and years and years ago, Dick Cheney being part of that wing of the Republican Party, the huge, huge wing, like almost the entire party that said Mm -hmm. deficits don't matter. Nobody talks about it. That seems a, a trifle lopsided, I would say. You know what I think is at work here, Tom, to an extent, is, is economics envy. In other words, people like us, we think average people ought to be animated and go read Rothbard and Mises and Hazlitt, and this, this ought to be part of their lives as opposed to you know, watching the Atlanta Braves or the Bachelor show or whatever the hell they're watching, right? So, so – yeah, I think that's sort of our bias coming through. But nonetheless, people don't go out and protest in the streets, even over gas prices. They certainly don't go protest in the streets over, you know, the Fed announcing a 0.5 basis points rate hike, right? I mean, yeah. mo- most people are snoozing about this. But in, in I think in a sense, it's a misnomer to talk about social issues versus economic or fiscal issues. They're all the same thing at the end of the day, because economics is about human action. It's about social cooperation. I remember uh, in my days in Ron Paul's office, we always argued that there's no such thing as foreign policy and domestic policy, especially in the constitutional sense. You go back and look, and this is just this is just policy. Congress is spending money. It's doing these things. So I'm not sure that we can so neatly separate economics and you know the underlying morality, the underlying cultural depredation, for example, what inflation does to families, what, as, as you mentioned, uh, money problems does to families. So, you know, I, I use the term social issues, I guess, in the current sense in which it's that, that term is used. But nonetheless, um, boy, imagine the divisions we have in America right now. Imagine how much we're at each other's throats, at least rhetorically, proverbially, proverbially. And, and then, you know, give us the 70s economy, in terms of stagflation and unemployment and, um, you know, give us the goods and services, the material life of, of the 70s, for example, which isn't all that long ago. I mean, that would make all of this so-called culture war exponentially worse. Oh, without a doubt, because we had, you know, some reasonably good economic times under Trump. 
And, and you know, to some degree that was because of Trump, but to, to a large degree, these these things are independent of presidents. They have more to do with the Fed and more to do with, with frankly, just good luck than usually with, with, uh, with presidents. But we did have some fairly good times, and yet you saw the nastiness and the, the insanity was off the charts. Now imagine people genuinely unable to pay bills now. Mm-hmm. And I mean a lot of people unable to pay bills on all sides of, of, of the spectrum. Then imagine how much nastier it gets. Now, meanwhile, a lot of the people who drive the nastiness are themselves wealthy enough that they're not, you know, they'll, they'll see a bit of their stock portfolio shaved off, but they're not going to, you know, they'll still be eating steak dinners. Uh, so right. those people don't really care. But in a way, that that's also bad because the fact that they don't care, they this allows them to indulge their utter contemptuousness for the average American by, mm-hmm. by, by frankly, doing what they've started to do over the past year, which is to ridicule their financial concerns, make them feel small and stupid. And so what this will do in turn is, now I don't know what the timeline for this is, but it has got to get people thinking in terms of national divorce, this thing doesn't work, when people loathe each other to this degree and they look at the world so differently, so incompatibly, what is the point of continuing with this project? What is the good that is to be attained by continuing this project? It's true that if we somehow went our separate ways, which is a messy thing and hard to figure out exactly how it would work, but if we somehow did that and somehow did that along philosophical lines, it's true that one side couldn't aspire to conquering the other side anymore. But as we've seen over the years, you never succeed in doing that. You never succeed in that anyway. So why not live the best life you possibly can in your society? But Jeff, unfortunately, it's you, me, and 12 other people who think that way. Well, and I think Roe really demonstrates how strongly held this is, especially on the progressive left. I mean, they're not interested in this bargain. This idea that, hey, look, California could have the uh, most unrestricted abortion rules imaginable. New York State could. Uh, that would be entirely up to the majoritarian will of voters in that state. And, and on top of that, of course, they could encourage women from other states to travel there freely uh, and obtain abortions under those circumstances. I mean, the, the left just isn't interested in that deal. They view this um, as just such a fundamental part of a woman's uh, life uh, so intimately attached to her body, her choice, you know, all this tired rhetoric that's just never never gets anywhere, uh, that they're just not interested in that deal. Of course, the 14th Amendment and this idea of incorporation, which I brought up in the article, has exacerbated this, I think, disastrously so. I mean, look, uh, the idea of uh, judicial review in the Supreme Court, the idea of the 14th Amendment and the incorporation doctrine, these are huge issues. There's very brilliant legal scholars on both sides of these, there are friends of ours, you know, people like Judge Andrew Napolitano, um, R- Randy Barnett uh, at, at Georgetown, w- with whom I would personally disagree on this. But nonetheless, uh, you know, very brilliant, well-read people. Uh, so you can, you can argue all you want about those two doctrines uh, in terms of the history behind them, the ratification, also the, uh, the, you know, the case law, the legal arguments. But Regardless of where you come down on those two issues, judicial review and incorporation in particular, it, it's, you have to admit that they both do a lot of injury to federalism. And it, it becomes awfully hard, uh, especially to sell the left, to 
sell to progressives on the left this idea, hey, Roe just decentralizes the question. You can do what you want, but you have to live with these recalcitrant states like Alabama, you know, perhaps uh, uh, passing very draconian restrictions on abortion. They're not interested in that because once you accept the idea of federalization of everything, then um, I think it's, it's really weaponized the abortion debate in a very, very unholy way. Well, first of all, on the 14th Amendment, to my mind, the best thing on it is by M.E. Bradford, Mel Bradford, but it was written as M.E. Bradford called Changed Only a Little, The Reconstruction Amendments and the Nomocratic Constitution of 1787. I read it as a book chapter. It may have been published as an article, uh, but that, I've, and you can tell from the title, Changed Only a Little. So he doesn't see the 14th Amendment as ever having been conceived of as giving broad scope to social engineers to use it as a crowbar to pry their way into every corner of American society. It was meant to ensure that the rights of the freed slaves were respected, period. End of discussion. That's what it was for. It was not for all these other things or making sure that you don't have a, an institution somewhere, you know, a club that's all men or all women, and then we have to, we have to ruin that. You know, that's, that's not what it was for, so we shouldn't appeal to it uh, in that way. But, yeah, it's incredible how many people are appalled by the idea of the original American Constitution, which is local self-government, which is the states make the decisions on, in the major areas. I mean, this was agreed on by virtually everybody. Right. I, you know, even, even a Daniel Webster, who was a, a man of the Union, uh, would have understood that that was what the Tenth Amendment meant. I mean, Daniel Webster thought that the states should, should uh, prevent the federal government from imposing a military draft if it should come to that. I mean, he thought the states had that kind of power uh, to make these decisions over over uh, extraordinarily important issues and and even mundane issues. So, um, but so that's the system we have. Doesn't matter what the issue is. It could be abortion. Could be anything else. That is the system that we have, and that was what I. That's I think what they're trying to drive at in this draft that was leaked to the public. They're trying to say, if it's, uh, it, it quotes uh, Judge Alito, uh, Justice Alito, as saying that the legal reasoning in Roe was extremely weak. And that, that, look, basically what you have is a document that never mentions abortion. And so the default answer is that the Tenth Amendment, therefore, resolves mm -hmm. the issue. Okay, so mm -hmm. the, the, the issue of, of abortion is left to the states. Well, this was not uh, Alito just being in a foul mood. You can find an array of left-wing scholars since 1973. You can find them in 1973 saying that even though I happen to like the outcome, the legal reasoning here is non-existent. Or some of them would say, I think I can find a right to abortion in the Constitution, but this certainly ain't it. There were a lot of people who, who said that. We love Harry Blackman, but he, didn't, he did, a, did us a disservice with Roe because we have no real legal argument to hang our hat on in that, in that decision. So I think the court was trying to do something to revive the system that was bequeathed to us. Even though we've had centralized government for so long, we don't even recognize the original American system. But this is it. It's a system where when you have an issue like abortion, on which people are deeply divided, and which each side thinks the answer is simply obvious, but half the country thinks the answer is not so obvious— the way that the original American Constitution resolved a matter like that was, well, there really is no ideal way to resolve something like this, is there? Mm -hmm. But but one way is not just taking one answer and shoving it down the throats of everybody in the country, 
but recognizing that the United States is a series of societies. That's why the Constitution always refers to the United States in the plural. And so we're going to have a plural answer to to, uh, contentious issues. Of course, the problem is that I think most people have just abandoned this sense of states or federalism or the Tenth Amendment, you know, and that's the history in the United States anyway. The biggest quiet political story was the centralization of everything, not just in Washington, D.C., but also with the court itself, the Supreme Court. So it's a tough sell. And look, I understand conceptually. I think libertarians generally are bad and wrong on the 14th Amendment. They're generally bad and wrong on centralization. But they make a valid point, which is, you know, these are arbitrary state lines. We're all Americans. What does it really matter if someone's in Alabama? If abortion really is, you know, a sacrosanct woman's right, and that's absolutely what most libertarians think, they're rabidly pro-choice, then why should it matter? And, And of course, there's, I think that's true to a large extent. But the flip side is then, well, why should it matter whether they're in the United States or Saudi Arabia? Right. Right. At some point, you have to say that there's a political boundary or a political subdivision or an area of jurisdiction over which the Constitution applies in an area where it doesn't, like Saudi Arabia. Um, And so it, it really is a tough thing. But what I guess what bothers me is that we always go back and couch this uh, in terms of some nefarious states' rights, you know, there's going to be these evil, uh, retrograde, racist right-wingers who are going to be denying women abortions in Alabama if we allow this uh, Alito decision to go through. And that's why we have to do it. We have to save everyone, and we can't have any degree of federalism. And of course, what that engenders is just such intense hostility throughout the country, um, you know, whether it's guns, whether it's abortion, whether it's uh, what local school boards do, this idea that we have to have one standard uh, set by Washington, D.C. When you have such a diverse country, 330 million people, think how different conditions are in Alaska versus Miami versus Kansas City versus Honolulu versus Phoenix, you know. Um, and and it, really this universalism in the political sense, I think is one of the biggest Achilles heels of uh, people who who value liberty, because you have to look at the world as it is and say a lot of people's definition of liberty is very different than yours. It's far more of a positive rights worldview. And so when you when you abandon this because other people will probably do some things you don't like in their in their particular state, and even within that state, some people will be harmed because they become the the minority on this issue. I think we have to go back to the idea that that decentralization is better, not perfect, and that it it ratchets back the hatred and the rhetoric. It it allows an escape valve. But more more importantly, if a government is recalcitrant or oppressive or hurting people, at least you have isolated it and reduced its jurisdiction to to a smaller group of people. and, And perhaps there's a greater degree of mobility between states than there is uh, for someone to leave the United States altogether. So you know, I really think that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, if we're going to accept a constitutional framework at all, uh, are about the last thing we have left in this country that could save us from what appears to be a really nasty unraveling. Yeah, I hear what you're saying about, because uh, suppose the situation were reversed and it was an issue where I felt that a fundamental right was being taken away from people and would I really just say, well, I guess that's the federal system we have? I mean, maybe I wouldn't feel um, that way. 
but the thing is, when it comes down to it, I still do feel that way because I think to myself, what is the institutional arrangement given the existence of states? And I don't just mean states like Massachusetts, but states like France. Given that states exist in the world, what's the institutional arrangement in which infringements on liberty are likely to at least be minimized? And it seems as if multiplying jurisdictions and having political competition is the best outcome we can hope for. And of course, you get a cartoon version of the history of states' rights from progressives, mm-hmm. because none of them know anything, and they want to portray mm-hmm. it as bad, because they, of course, they think centralization and smart elites running the whole society is progress. So anything that's not that is stupid, retrogression, backward, redneck, uh, and and that states' rights is always just a cover for people who want to oppress people. But when you look at the the whole history of states' rights, yes, it's true. You can find states' rights being appealed to for um, disreputable causes. That's true. But you can also find the nation state itself being used for disreputable causes. And not one of these people says, we better get rid of the nation state. Look what it did in the 20th century with world wars and genocides and propaganda and whatever. They, not a word, right? Nothing. So they don't apply that principle to the nation state. But when you look at the whole history of states' rights, I mean, you look at the sorts of things that states have nobly fought against in American history. They fought against infringements on the, the freedom of speech with the, the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions in 1798. They fought against unconstitutional searches and seizures in the form of the, the uh, Jeffersonian embargo, which could more or less on mere suspicion just grab your, your ship and your cargo. Um, they fought against, as I mentioned with Daniel Webster, the introduction of the military draft. They fought against the, uh, the fugitive slave laws. Now, you can actually find a fugitive slave clause in the Constitution, but they argue that that doesn't mean the federal government can do, can effectively conscript people into chasing after runaway slaves. We're just not going to comply with that. So you find case after case after case of this. And then in this day and age, uh, you can still find um, areas where the political left might have some sympathy if they were thinking clearly, like the war on drugs or issues involving hemp or civil liberties or um, or traffic light cameras or whatever, there have been plenty of pushback at the local level and at the mm-hmm. state level saying we're not going to allow um, federal intervention. Right. And here's the difference between the left and the right in this country. The left is serious. If this Alito decision goes through, um, deep blue progressive states, they'll just announce openly, their governors will announce that we're ignoring it, Right. They will simply announce that we are not abiding by the Supreme Court and we're going to do whatever we want. <laughs> I think I think that's an interesting sense. Yeah, but that, of course, but but if they did get rid of Roe, doing whatever they want is exactly what the situation right, would but be. You, but you know what I'm you know yeah. what I'm saying? They'll they'll simply deny the authority of the Supreme Court um, in a, in a real sense in a in the same way they have with, for instance, sanctuary cities yeah. on the issue of immigration. Now so, you can imagine the, what would happen if a bunch of Trump sympathetic governors said they were ignoring the Supreme Court. Right. This would be the worst atrocity in the history of mankind. Right. There are just no principles anymore. Nobody has principles. Well, I guess what irritates me is not just progressives, but also libertarians intentionally, I think, dis- misuse the term states' rights. They say, well, states don't have rights. Yeah. It's a well, shorthand no, no, phrase, people. Like, I know nobody states argues, don't have rights. Right. Nobody argues that states have rights vis-a-vis their citizens, that states' rights is a term of art applied to, to explain a sh- system of shared powers right. between a central government and its subsidiaries. So there's, there's nothing more to this idea that states, states don't have rights vis-a-vis their citizens. So let's get rid of that. 
But, you know, and look, 10th Amendment states' rights, that's, that's you know, that's 10 podcasts. But, but I, I want to bring back a, another fiscal element to this, which is that even if you're the most bleeding heart progressive, even if you're an mmt or even if you're a, a dyed-in-the-wool Keynesian, uh, you know, even the most ardent mmt or understands that there are some limits to uh, federal money creation in terms of inflation, unemployment, et cetera, even the most ardent. So if we look at that outstanding $30 trillion of federal debt right now, there's actually a website you can go to called treasurydirect.gov. And this website, you can put in a period like a particular year, and it'll tell you what was the weighted average interest rate paid during that period by the federal government on all of its outstanding debt. Because obviously there are bonds which, with longer durations, there's notes and bills with shorter durations. And so you put all this and you weight it by the underlying value of the bonds. And so if you look at, let's say, fiscal 2021, um, Congress spent about $562 billion paying interest on the national debt. But if you go to treasurydirect.gov, you can find out that that was based on a weighted average interest of about one and a half, 1.5 or 1.6% interest rates across all that outstanding treasury debt, now $30 trillion plus. So if we look at that, Tom, and we say, look, if that were just to double to 3% on average, which is still below historical norms for the so-called federal funds rate, I mean, Congress would be spending a trillion dollars a year, more than a trillion dollars a year, simply on servicing federal debt interest. That would be the single biggest line item in the budget. It had a DOD, it had a Medicare, Social Security. Uh, You know, I wonder to what extent we just want to bury our head in the sand on this and say, well, you know, let's talk about CRT in schools. Let's talk about DeSantis and Disney. Let's talk about... Roe v. Wade. I, I mean, at some point, it feels like a really nasty and brutish um, fiscal reality is going to come grab us by the throat. Right. And so we should be spending more than 0.002% of our time talking about it, right? which is exactly about where it is. Whereas we do we do get caught up in whatever the issue of the day is. And I mean, now it's it's this phenomenon whereby there's a current thing that everybody has to pledge their allegiance to. So whatever it is, it could be, it could be Ukraine, it could be COVID, uh, it, it could be Disney, it, it could, what, whatever it is, there are people who are just ready to sign up and make sure everybody knows that they hold the elite opinion on everything. Well, if, if that's the way half the country or 30% of the country wants to be, then how are we ever going to get to this? Because this mm-hmm. ain't ever going to be one of those things. No, no one's ever going to have a symbol like of a U.S. dollar burning or something as a symbol of what's happening financially. <laughs> you know, I wish then we could really have a conversation, but it won't happen, unfortunately. And, and as I say, I, I think the Internet, I love the Internet. I couldn't live without the Internet. I make my living on the Internet. Um, but I think I've been as guilty as a lot of other libertarians who get sometimes carried away with how tech can necessarily be the solution to everything. I think I got carried away with the the upside of the internet and didn't quite realize the downside. The downside is that the internet gets into every nook and cranny of every society in the world and mm-hmm. can, in fact, although it can elevate dissident voices, it can also really, really entrench groupthink to a degree never before seen, 
We didn't quite act like this before, where every, but every little thing was a way of pledging your allegiance and posting an emoji and posting something in your avatar, because we didn't have emojis or avatars. And so there are aspects of it that are distinctly unhelpful. Well, that's certainly true. And there's no filter. There's no stop stopgap mechanism between your every, you know, inane thought and what some people tweet out or whatever. So that, that's a problem. And I do think that the immediate visceral nature of social media lends itself to social issues better than economic or financial issues because those tend to be more drawn out. And, you know, they're not, they're not as amenable to simple sound bites, whereas, you know, abortion is like, my body, my choice. Um, don't kill babies, right? I mean, we can, we can sort of express these things more Right. More yeah, well, vis- how are you going to come up with something like that for the Federal Open Market Committee, right? There is yeah. no such thing. And, yeah. of course, Americans, you know, depending on how cynical you are, by design or by accident— are not informed, are, are not trained, are not educated about these issues, so they don't even know what their opinion is supposed to be. Well, I, I made a prediction on Lisa Kennedy's Fox Business Show the other night. I said that Hillary Clinton would be the 2024 Democratic nominee. Um, we'll see if I'm right about that. But nonetheless, it's shaping up like it could be Hillary versus Trump. Or it could be Biden versus Trump, or it could be Hillary versus Ron DeSantis. I mean, I wonder if, you know, two years from now, might as well be 200 in the current news cycle that, in which we live. But I just wonder if when that ugly presidential contest comes around, are we going to be talking about stagflation? Are we going to be talking about unemployment? Are we going to be talking about debt? Or do you think we're going to be talking about abortion in the Supreme Court? Well, I know for a fact we won't be talking about those first things, because, partly because I know that neither Hillary nor Trump has any intention of doing anything about it. Everybody wants to kick the can on that. Who wants to be the one who really starts rolling that back? There, there isn't even a Nixon to China way out of that one. You know, I mean, there have been the, the odd Democrat and the odd Republican who really want fiscal reform and all that, but yeah, nobody wants to hear that. So it is quite possible because Hillary will just pound away that it's Trump who did this. It's Trump who brought this about. But the issue, though, is how many voters will that sway? And I was just talking to Michael Malice, and he reminded me of something that I remember reading about years and years and years ago, and apparently it still holds true. People may have opinions on abortion, but when you ask them, are you, if you're a single-issue abortion voter, how many single-issue pro-life voters are there versus single-issue Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, pro-choice or pro-abortion voters, it's it's in the when I used to look at the statistics, it was two to one in favor of the pro-life people. Now it may not be as wide a gap, but the gap exists, and um, there are reasons for that gap. But the fact is, it exists. So, although everyone is predicting that this will be an albatross around the necks of the Republicans, I I wouldn't take that to the bank just yet. Yeah. I- I wouldn't either. And what's, what I've always thought was interesting and cynical is the, the Republican Party and pro-life groups on the right and the money they have raised over the years since Roe, the billions and billions and billions of dollars on this idea that we're going to fight uh, against abortion, we're going to fight for pro-life causes, we're going to have marches, and we're going to fight to overturn Roe. You know, imagine if all that money had gone into, whether Catholic or otherwise, uh, just charities and organizations, adoption agencies, places where a young woman could go 
and live uh, perhaps free in a, in a dormitory or an apartment and be taken care for and, and been given good prenatal care. Um, and then, you know, if she chooses to, to give the baby up for adoption. In other words, if all those billions and billions of dollars that went to the political right so that they could bloviate about abortion had actually gone to helping young girls uh, or, or middle-aged girls or whatever, middle-aged women uh, who were pregnant and, and perhaps not wanting to keep the baby, it, it would have just been far more effective. And this is just another example of how politics degrades us. Absolutely. I mean, I, another an analog to that is um, think about how many people or how many billions of dollars went into the conservative movement that went into pointless uh, political campaigns that could have gone into, you know, 20 years ago making the kind of K through 12 uh, homeschool curriculum that uh, that we have, you know, at, at uh, for example, ronpaulhomeschool.com. I mean, you know, Ron Paul creates a K through 12 program to help people learn uh, not just the government propaganda, but also the other side of the story, and also to learn how to manage your money when you're when you're young and when you're when you're older how to open a home business, how to speak effectively, all these sorts of things that they're not going to equip you with at all in the traditional schools. Look at all that money that was blown. It wasn't until the 2010s that we got the Ron Paul curriculum when, when Dr. Paul retired from Congress and he could focus on it. But where, where is the Heritage Foundation's K-12 curriculum? Where all these political action committees? All this money was just burned up into nothingness, and yet... How much of that would it have taken? One sliver to create something that would genuinely change the culture, and then none of them could be bothered to do it. Hey, Tom, you know where your money won't burn up into nothingness? <laughs> Clear, Jeff. I'm, I'm glad you managed to get a plug in there. I want to wrap this up by saying the following. When I talk about politics degrades us, I, I mean, we've gotten to the point in this country where I, I do believe there is something to this new... Uh, flavor of the month on the right amongst writers uh, like Sobram Amari, I hope I'm saying his name right, uh, Patrick Deneen and others who are saying we're in, we're in post-liberalism. And I agree with that to, a, to an extent, although I think they're misdiagnosing things. I really think Steve Bannon's idea that we're in a post-persuasion America is very true and very telling because what we've come down to now is really who whom in our politics. And that's what's driving everything. And when I look at the potential candidates, I think to myself, what it really boils down to for people who do choose to vote and participate is, you know, which of these candidates just doesn't hate my guts? Yeah. Right. And that's, that's I think, what was happening with Hillary Clinton. I mean, this isn't about ideology so much. This is just rank tribalism. And so I know Hillary Clinton just hates my guts. Now, Donald Trump maybe didn't hate my guts. I didn't vote for it, but nonetheless, I could look at that. So let's say uh, some a third party like the Libertarian Party uh, has Dave Smith as their presidential nominee in a couple of years. You know, I know Dave and Dave doesn't hate my guts. Dave doesn't wish ill upon me and my personal life, my personal finances, my family. I mean, that's that sounds like a pretty low bar. Yeah. But nonetheless, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who is, you know, she's there's some shady things about her with the CFR and. Um, you know, I'm not sure she's entirely the person we, we wish she were, but nonetheless, I don't think Tulsi Gabbard hates my guts. No, that's right. And I would be much, much happier 
if she were the face of the, of the center left or something. I'm much sure. much happier because at least she listens. I think she takes other people's perspectives seriously, and sometimes she even adopts them. You know, she's reasonably open-minded. I mean, you know, let, let's be honest. Not, none of us are really that open-minded. I mean, once you, especially, I'm, I'm pushing 50 at this point. I'm not likely to change <laughs> on many things. So it really impresses me when somebody comes along and surprises me and, and quotes Hayek to me or something like that. I think that's that's pretty good. So, yeah, I'd love to have uh, have her. And, and you're right. You She comes on. She'll talk to Ron Paul, and you think she genuinely respects him. And it's right. just so, so rare to encounter that. So, yeah, we really have gotten to a point where it's people who hate me and wish me dead versus those who are at least indifferent. I'll even take indifferent, Jeff. Well, I think that's where we are today is, is that the social issues dominate for the same reason it's easier to eat junk food, for the same reason it's easier to scroll through social media feed than read a 900-page book. I think that's just where we are as a society. So... Uh, I'm not pointing fingers here. If I am, I'm pointing one back at myself because we all have that emotional reaction uh, that the so-called social issues stir in us. And I think it's something that we have to look inward and maybe tamp down a little bit and uh, you know, think a little bit more about creating a win-win society rather than a zero-sum political society. Tom, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for watching, and we'll be back with another Human Action Podcast next Friday. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.